Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, the weekend may be here. If you still have a whole workday ahead of you, or you're kind of just winding down your Thursday night and Friday's not yet really begun for you, then maybe it doesn't feel like the weekend. But in my experience, the weekend is more a state of mind than a couple of dates on a calendar. And one of the things I try to do with our last show of the week as we ease into the weekend is uh, give people an opportunity to laugh occasionally and give people an opportunity to reminisce about nostalgia and some of the great things of uh, days gone by. Well, we have recruited in studio a gentleman that is going to actually help us do both, a terrific guy by the name of Elliot Gordon, who is an entrepreneur, a producer, a talent agent, and actually a former aide to my favorite mayor of all time, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Elliot Gordon, thanks for coming in. Frank, thank you for having me. It's wonderful being here. Beautiful studio, and uh, I just feel great being at WABC. Well, So it's great to have you in studio. Studio again, and um, or it's great to have you in studio and talk to you again. For people that have not heard our prior conversation, remind us of the circumstances of how you came to work with Mayor Giuliani. What'd you do for Mayor Giuliani? Sure. What happened with Mayor Giuliani is I had a friend of mine. His name was uh, Lenny Gutman, and also Bruce Teitelbaum, and they were working with Rudy in uh, 1989 when he lost. So when he ran again in '93. Uh, in 91, Lenny came to me and said, El, we're going to put a lot of influence on the Jewish community because of the riots in Crown Heights under David Jenkins. Sure. We feel that's the place to go for the vote. And you want to come in on it. And I was very emotionally moved. I said, absolutely. And so I was working with Bruce Teitelbaum, who eventually became Rudy's chief of staff, and Lenny. Uh, and uh, we all got together. Initially, in 91, there was only about five of us. And, of course, by the time of Election Day, there was over 500. And then I stayed on in City Hall working as a senior aide to Rudy's first deputy mayor, Peter Powers. Mm. And then at that point, I left City Hall because I met a gentleman named Leon Charney uh, who had a cable TV show. Leon, a very wealthy uh, real estate guy, and Leon was the negotiator for the uh, treaty between Israel and Egypt in 1977. And I met him with Rudy, and he said, hey— I, at that time, you had to buy time. There was no streaming. There was no podcast. Right. So he said, I'll, I'm buying time in about 100 different markets because I got a TV show. Would you want to come in and be the producer, meaning book the guests? I said, I want to go into show business. I'm with you. And I was booking on guys like Alan King, which is how I met Alan, mm. and uh, a bunch of the comedians. And uh, like I say, after that, I had uh, met a guy named Jackie Mason. And uh, my mentor was a man named Sid Bernstein, which is how I met Jackie. And then these guys said, hey, you make calls. You get us a job. You got 10% for your pocket. We're getting 10 grand, 15 grand. You got, ten, you got a dollars $1,500 commission on a, on, a, on a phone call. And that got me into the entertainment business. And then Jackie really put me under his wing. Mason. Jackie Mason. He said, "El." you got to learn how to put together a contract, how to structure bonuses. I'm going to put you with my manager, Jill Rosenfeld. And he said, Jill, teach him what to do. And uh, we had a we had a little friction between Jill and I, which we never got over. Well, but- I, I know. I knew Jackie <laughs> yeah. and uh, and Jill. Right. Um, 
uh, fairly well, Jack but and Jill. <laughs> I love them. Uh, but I do, and too. they're incredibly entertaining yeah. and a real riot just to watch. Yes, but they're also t- totally insane. I mean, uh, just to yes. interact with them in yes. any circumstances is right. just great. I remember he used to. I used to produce his radio program when he'd fill in yeah. on on radio stations, and. I would say when he would leave, it was like a tornado had just come in. I would say to the rest of the staff, I've never seen a host leave a radio studio in the condition that Jackie Mason just left these radio studios. There'd be peanut shells on the floor. And I'm thinking, where were their peanuts? I didn't see any peanuts. And yet there's peanut (laughs) shells on the floor. There'd be all sorts of weird sounds emanating from the microphone. I've been working at radio for decades. I've never heard those sounds before or since. He a wonderful guy. Uh, well, wonderful comic, uh, but a very strange guy. Very strange guy. I miss so that's him. That's an asterisk that you threw in there, Frank. <laughs> that's, that's true. But, um, well, that that is great. Now, what had you been doing professionally at the time that you started working with, with Rudy and, and Bruce Teitelbaum well, and Peter Well, at the Perry? time, I had, uh, I had uh, come up with something called the breakfast bagel. And I said to myself, I said, you know, bagels are four ounces. If I make it five ounces and what you hit a cream cheese on that, that's a whole breakfast with a cup of coffee. Ed Koch, I know every morning had that bagel with, with, cause that was his type of a breakfast. And then I sold the route and then I got push carts that I pulled around the city, maybe a dozen different push carts, Italian ices. So, um, I was always hustling. I always liked to be on my own. I always felt, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit is something very positive. And then I got involved with, uh, with, uh, Rudy's campaign and then from him, Leon Charney. And then from there... The rest like is said, history. Well, yeah. And uh, you mentioned Jackie Mason not being easy. Now, you got you to gotta figure this. I represented Pat Cooper and Jackie Mason at the same time. Uh, I know so, Pat. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm like a ping pong ball going back and <laughs> forth. How yeah. did those guys get along with one another? Uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Well, what happened was, the truth is, um, ja- Pat, Jackie told me, he said, L, when I wasn't doing well before 1985, before my success on Broadway, I was hustling. I was struggling. He said, I was working a lot in Florida, the condos down there. I always worked even after the Ed Sullivan problem. He said, so I felt that maybe if I got a co-bill with me, another performer on the bill, I could do more business. And I did less business with everybody except Pat Cooper and Eddie Fisher. He said, because people felt, well, we're going to get less of Jackie Mason with this other guy. So who needs it? We'll see him next time around. He said, but with Pat, I did more business. So they worked for a while together and then they went their separate ways. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't remember what Pat had to say, what uh, Pat had to say about uh, Jackie, but I don't remember Jackie saying many nice things about Pat. Well, what happened was, let let me kind of clear that up. Jackie, I'm having coffee with him at a Starbucks on West 57th Street with Jill. And Jack tells me, he said, "Oh, you know, I'm having a little problems in a couple of markets. I'm not selling out in Chicago. I'm not selling out in Phoenix. And he said, maybe I should go back in there with Pat Cooper. This is, uh, I said, well, I'll bring the idea to Pat. And you know it's going to be a 50-50 split. Right. That's going to split the money down the middle. And I called Pat, and Pat said, I'm in. And then Jackie calls me, said, I changed my mind. And what he told me was, he said, oh, we weren't Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis where we, we meshed together. We did things separately. When we did our 10 minutes together, I was I'm not easy with him. Mm. We don't get along that well, and I don't want to do it. And I told it to Pat, and Pat said, fine. And I don't think those guys spoke again after that. You know, uh, just with respect to their comedy, and we're going to talk about some other comedians sure. in, a, in a moment. With respect to their comedy, it is very different, but it is very similar in that neither one of them really tell jokes. They sort That's of right. just, That's both right. of them kind of react, comedically okay. comment in yeah. a stream of consciousness kind of manner. Right. It's a very difficult thing to do. Yes. I, I try to do that for yeah. four hours. Nobody laughs. <laughs> Except when I'm not trying to make them laugh. But um, the fact that they're both able to pull off that kind of comedy is uh, really an art form. Well, you're right. Now, it's very interesting. You know, Pat uh, is the ultimate ad libber. The truth is, when he would go on the Friars Roast, he didn't have a piece of paper with him. He didn't have a writer. I called him. I said, are you going to write material for whatever to Jerry Lewis Roast? He said, am I getting paid? I said, no. He said, you got your answer. <laughs> and, and he would just get up there and he would go from the gut and he would be hysterical. Jackie, on the other hand, um, he's very analytical. And uh, he told me, he said, El, he said, I wrote six Broadway shows, mm. 
sitting in Wendy's fast food. He said, what I do is I observe people and I try to pick up the nuances and then I take it and I push it to the comedic extreme and then I'll go to the comedy clubs and I'll really work it in. So, you know, you could say, I I guess Jack was uh, much more sophisticated with his with his approach. Uh Pat, his physical gestures, his lovable anger. I mean, Jackie calls me one night. He said, I'm calling you from Chicago. I'm going into a club called Zany's. He said, I'm 80 years old. I got five Broadway shows under my belt. What am I doing in Zany's? That's very funny. But then he tells me, he said, El, it's the right way to do comedy. I'm taking it to comedy clubs, even though I'm 80 years old, with a Tony Award, and then I'm coming back to Broadway for a sixth time. So Jack was more structured, Pat more of a cowboy. There, uh, there has been, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Elliot Gordon. If you wanted to learn more about him, his career, the things he's doing, you could check out his website, ElliotGordonPresents.com. Two L's, two T's, ElliotGordonPresents.com. There has been a resurgence of interest in recent years in the golden era of the Catskills. Now, if people are listening around the country or even younger people in the New York area are not necessarily up on what made the Catskills so significant, particularly in the 50s and in the 60s, Fill us in. Why did the Catskills become such a great, before we get into the nexus with comedy, why did it become such a great vacation destination? People could go to Florida. They could go to the Jersey Shore. Why were so many people making the Catskills the place where they spent their summers? Well, Frank, that's a great question. Now, I put together a presentation called The History of the Comedians of the Catskills, and it's just been taken on a life of its own. It's become a big hit. And what happened was in the 1930s, Jews could not get into hotels. They were restricted. They weren't allowed in. So you had a bunch of people say, hey, if you want to get to a hotel, we better build some. And that was the original reason in the 30s to construct those hotels in the Catskills. And what happened was they hit it at the right time because at that time, airfare was cost prohibitive. Now everybody flies wherever they're going, but not then. They used to call it the jet set, that you had to have a lot of money to take that jet. So people wanted somewhere where they can go by car and you're two hours from the metropolitan area. So you got a place to draw from. Also, if you're talking about the 1940s and 50s and 60s, not everybody had an air conditioning unit. So beat the heat. Hey, we could get 10 degrees cooler, 12 degrees cooler going for a couple of weeks up to Monticello. So you had that going for you. And the third thing was Europe. At that time, so many Jews had ran away from Europe. They were getting killed in Europe. If you said, hey, you want to take a vacation to Europe, they'd hit you with a plate. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea was they're going to the Catskills. And what Jack told me uh, or somebody told me that what the Catskills did that was brilliant, the owners of the hotel, is they staggered the show times. So if you would go to the Poconos, let's say, as an entertainer, as a comedian, all the shows at the same time, you can get one job. Interesting. You go to the Catskills, you can get two, maybe three. So that's why a young Jerry Lewis and a young Jackie Mason and a young Buddy Hackett, they're there for that extra job, the extra money, so they wound up with the best comedians. Uh, talking with Elliot Gordon. By the way, if you have questions about anything we're talking about throughout the hour, you can give us a call. We'll try and get to as many of them as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me ask you maybe more of a, a difficult question, maybe not for you, but uh, people watch uh, shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I absolutely love, and other similar shows that have uh, depicted that sort of golden era of the Catskills, and it looks like the place to be. It looks like all the uh, activities and the grandeur and the fun of a cruise ship times 10 without having to go be stuck on a boat somewhere. Why did the Catskills fall out of favor as a vacation destination? Well, uh, Frank, uh, and Jack and I spoke about this a lot, is because the three things that built it were no longer in play. Uh, there were no, there's no hotels that I know are restricted to Jews. They can go at any hotel they want, so they didn't need the Catskills. 
As far as the airfare, it's affordable. You can fly all over. And the issue with Europe, it's generations ago. People are going to Dubai. They're going to right. Italy. So it no longer was viable. And the air conditioning, everybody had an air conditioner. You want to get cool, go into the dining room. You don't got to go to Monticello. <laughs> so that was really what took it down starting in the 1970s. And there was really no longer a reason for the Catskills. I mean, Jackie did tell me what you just said. He said, "L at times it seemed like the Champs-Élysées when he was at the Concorde Friday night or Saturday night, people are coming into the nightclub in black tie and gowns and, and, and diamonds. Uh, he said, this is the mountains. But it looked like, you know, they saved and... That two weeks was the most important two weeks in their life. Wow. So the demise of anti-Semitism and the rise of affordable airfare is what killed the Catskills. Uh, Absolutely. And um, air conditioning units. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I say, people, uh, the the issue with Europe, everyone's going to Europe. But it's beautiful up there. I was up there last year. I checked out the casino over there. It was uh, a lot of great great stuff over there. Kenneth, our telephone talent coordinator, he was just there last weekend, uh, rented a cabin. It's really quite picturesque. Now... Why did the Catskills become such a comedy destination? There's so many comedy greats, and we're going to talk about a few in a moment. There's so many comedy greats that trace either their origin or their rise Mm -hmm. directly to the Catskills. People want to see comedians everywhere. What made the Catskills so special with respect to its connection to comedy? The competition. In other words, what uh, Pat Cooper told me, he said, Al, when I went up there... He said there was so much pressure because the all the other guys were all there. He said, if I didn't get a laugh every 15 seconds, well, Buddy Hackett's over there. Alan King, they're going to take my job. I better be on my best. I better be really sharp. And that level of competition really put the pedal to the metal. Now, Jackie told me, he said, oh, I was a young guy. I knew I had to be up there, so I got a job as a lifeguard. I said, could you swim? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I made a sign that says, be careful for your own safety and the lifeguards. And he said, but I was up there, and three in the morning, I went into the nightclub. There were two people in the audience. He said, I got lucky. I started telling jokes. Before you know it, four people, eight people, they said, there's a funny kid on three in the morning. And he said, for me, it happened right away. But the idea was the level of competition. You got to be sharp. Also, hey, if you make mistakes, so, you know, they'll hang in there with you so you could develop as a comedian. It doesn't happen overnight. But uh, they became, Frank, the gold standard for comedy. For a generation. Wow. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. Elliot Gordon is here talking about the history of cats, the Catskills and the comedians that perform there. We're going to get into some specifics in a moment. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining I went hiking with Joe Spivey He developed poison The great Alan Sherman singing Hello Mudda, Hello Fada The anthem of any parent of a summer camp child Or any child that's ever gone away to sleep away camp Talking about uh, all things comedy and cat skills with Elliot Gordon He's an entrepreneur, former aide to Mayor Giuliani A producer and a talent agent Now Elliot, you've done such a great job Giving a little bit of the context of the cat skills and so forth What's your connection to uh, the comedy of the cat skills? Well, my connection was is I as a young kid, uh, or I was representing many of those guys because what happened was they were a little bit easier to approach to get them as clients. Uh, so what happened was when I was producing a show for Leon Charney, uh, Leon Charney Report, I would book Alan King. I just called the New York Friars Club and I say, hey. 
He got Alan's number. We'd love to have him on the program. And I called him, and I happened to get him on the phone. He says, I know, Leon. I'd love to do the show. And Alan was very entrepreneurial. He said, Ellie said, I'm involved with a pickle business. Uh, could I bring pickles? I said, bring a pizza. Bring whatever you want. Bring a sandwich. Just bring you, Alan. And he came down, and we had a great time, and we became friendly. And uh, I didn't realize that Alan had been a promoter. People know him as a great comedian. Sure. But Sid Bernstein told me, he said, El, uh, Alan um, put up the money uh, with a guy named Walter Hyman for Barbra Streisand's first national tour. Are you tour. kidding? I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. And Alan was involved in so many different things. Uh, and I just remember him pulling into the parking lot with his Rolls Royce because that was his signature status symbol. And, uh, you know, Pat told me, and Jack also, although Jack denied, he didn't remember, but he said we would go to Alan as young guys, and he was always there to give us good advice and give us good encouragement. And uh, so, like I say, I got a chance to meet Alan there. I never got Alan a job, but it was nice to meet him. Uh, but Pat, I met at a, a restaurant called Rocky Lee's, which is not there anymore. It's 2nd and 52nd. And it was a hangout because Sinatra would come in mm. for pizza <laughs> and everyone else in the world, Jay Leno, would come in. Once you got the big guy, sure. you got everybody else. And um, uh, Pat would come in there. And, we, and I was the maitre d' and we just hit it off. And again, Pat's such a regular guy. I'll make a couple of calls. And I was getting him work right away. And then I packaged him with Robert Klein. I said, maybe I'll get the two of you guys together. And I sold it to um, uh, Kravis Center in West Palm Beach. And one night they drew almost 2,000 people. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Robert Klein has some, uh, I read his book, and he has some great stories about being a busboy in the days of the Catskills, which are a very entertaining in a way that only he could tell. All right. I want to ask you about a few of the folks uh, that you've worked with and known over the years, including uh, a person that a lot of people believe is responsible genuinely for the rise of television a guy known affectionately as uncle milty that's uh milton burl here's a little bit of milton burl to refresh people's recollection at the hollywood palace i can come out i can come out and look at an audience and tell whether you're gonna be good or bad <laughs> good night <laughs> i don't feel much like working tonight uh, everything happened to me today picked the wrong ball team i'm unlucky that's the story of my life i'm going so bad i have an uncle died left me a barber shop in havana <laughs> That's, hey, this is a good audience. We'll do the whole show. I, uh, I'll come down a little front. I'm sorry. Wait here, Frank. I want to look at... Got a wonderful audience. It's a great pleasure, though, ladies and gentlemen, to be here for the first time at the palace. And I, I'm sorry, sir, this man in the fourth... Your head is shining right in my eyes. I'm like, it looks like a honeydew melon with legs. I, uh, I like to put my finger in his ear and go bowling. I'm very happy. I'm kidding. He hasn't got a bald head. He just shaves too high. But this, uh, this really indeed a great pleasure, though, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first time I've had the... And this girl, will you pull down your dress, please? <laughs> they look like Sonny Liston's. I'm very... Uh... No, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I was... Is this your wife, sir? Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, what was it, as if it wasn't obvious there, that made Milton Berle so powerful as a comic and as a communicator? Pat Cooper told me, he said, L, Milton Berle had, um, he had comedic rhythm. He said, I called him a jazz comedian, uh, and Pat knew Milton. Uh, and he said, I could say the same thing Milton Berle said, and it wasn't funny right. when I said it. There's something about his bones, his his mannerisms, that every his expressions on his face, everything about him was funny. Uh, and um, uh, I had a, a fellow who I knew very well named Henny Youngman, and they were very, very close for many, many years. Uh, and uh, uh, Milton, uh, I, I think he was one of those guys who was born funny. And when you're getting compliments from Pat Cooper, that's not easy. Sure, oh, yeah. yeah. And sure. uh, he, I think, really... Uh, set the standard at that time what would be done on television. 
And I don't think that we've risen. I think we've deteriorated. Well, and what was your relationship with Milton? Well, Bell? Milton Brill, just that I was a member of the Friars Club. And uh, I believe, as far as I know, the club there now on 55th between, uh, um, I think it's uh, Park and uh, Fifth or Park and Madison. I used to be a member for many, many years. I believe was his home, as far as I knew, and either he sold it to the club or when he was the head of the club, uh, there was some type of transformation. So that's my only connection, really what I know from Jackie Mason and Pat Cooper on, uh, like Pat said, uh, he had funny bones. Everything mm. he did was funny. A, a lot of people eager to chat with Elliot Gordon, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Linda is in Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi. Um, hi, Frank, and I'm hi. sorry I never got to meet you. Um, many years ago, when I was young, I was a cult model in in Manhattan. That's where I met Jackie, um, and we became friends. Oh. Um, yeah, we, we were in dating. Um, I, I, just, I knew about him. Um, I was there with my sister, um, and, you know, it was an accident. Um, but we were friends, and I, I was wondering, did you know uh, John Woolley, who was a producer for him? He introduced me to him, and Jesse Vogel was um, a close friend of his and also an attorney, and his sister, Evelyn. Did you know any of them? Yeah, Evelyn, very well. Uh, the other yeah, two, very nice, right? Yeah, very the, other, nice. the other two I did not know, but Evelyn, uh, I was living in Queens at the time, a few blocks from her, and we would meet for coffee quite a bit. The opposite of Jackie. Very polite, <laughs> very sweet, uh, and uh, uh, we got we got along very very well. And I knew his sister uh, Gail. She also lived near El- Evelyn. Let me ask you about someone uh, who they've called the Queen of Mean from time to time, uh, but uh, she had such a comedic. Uh, diverse repertoire beyond that, that um, she's really somebody that is a true living legend, probably one of the greatest of all time, not only as a talk show guest, but as a host, even terrific on radio. And that's, of course, Joan Rivers. Here she was on Ed Sullivan. The way the styles are today, I'm glad I'm married, because if I was single, I could never get married looking like this, you know? And I feel sorry for any single girl today. The styles and the whole society is not for single girls. You know that. Single men, yes. A man, he's single, he's so lucky. A boy on a date, all he has to be is clean and able to pick up the check. He's a winner. You know that. <laughs> or a, a, man, a man can call up anybody in the whole world. Do you know that? Hello, I saw your name in the locker room. I thought I'd give you a quick call. <laughs> a, girl, a girl can't call. Girl, you have to wait for the phone to ring, right? And when you, when you finally go on the date, the girl has to be well-dressed. The face has to look nice. The hair has to be in shape. The, the girl has to be the one that's bright and pretty, intelligent, a, a good sport. Howard Johnson's again. Hooray, hooray. Excuse me. A girl, a girl, you're 30 years old. You're not married. You're an old maid. A man, he's 90 years old. He's not married. He's a catch. It's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, now, her comedy style changed a little bit over the years, right? Well, well yes. Now, uh, let me mention about Joan. I, I represented her one time, although uh, we were not able to put the deal together. There was a guy who called me from London, private birthday party, wanted Jackie Mason, offered 80 grand, wow. 80,000 if Jack would do the birthday party. And Jack was in London a week earlier. I said, stay another week. I got a 10% commission. Do it for me. But he wouldn't do it. He came back. And uh, so then the guy said, well, you know, uh, who else? I said, well, maybe Joan Rivers. And I got her name from the number for her agent from the Friars Club. And we came close, but we couldn't set up the travel arrangements. There was some issue concerning the travel and her um, uh, doing a, a cruise at the time. So I almost made the deal with Joan, but I didn't. But the fellow who I was friendly with uh, was a man named Irvin Arthur and a uh, great agent. And uh, we did a lot together. Very theatrical, intuitive guy. And she had worked for him. Uh, and I once asked him, I said, any great stories that you got from the past? He said, yeah, well, in the 60s, there was a young lady, it was Joan Rivers, and she came to work for him as uh, she wanted to be represented. And he said, I didn't want to represent her. She needed a lot more seasoning. She wasn't ready yet. And she said, well, I'll take a job as your secretary. She was a very bright girl because mm. she knew she's the secretary. 
She's getting the calls from the bookers on the Ed Sullivan show to speak to Irvin. She's getting the calls from the other agencies to speak to Irvin. And she made all her own contacts and her own thing. And she went out and became a comedy star. She didn't need him. Absolutely. Uh, what do you attribute the fact that her style uh, changed so much from the time that she was doing the kind of act that we just heard on Ed Sullivan towards the end of her life when it was just a, a very different style of comedy, both very funny, but very different? That's a very good question. And I think uh, um, uh, comedians uh, who are running a business, it's business show business, mm-hmm. like every other business. Uh, I guess I could answer it with a parallel. I once asked uh, Jack, did you ever ask Buddy Hackett the same question? You know, when he did in the Catskills was you could do it on network TV. It was brilliant, but it was very, very family oriented. And then once he goes to the Vegas Strip, it was triple X. And he said, "L." he said, I asked Buddy that because I was a little disappointed in him going in that direction. Uh, and he said he told me that when he works clean, he gets a crowd of 3,500 people. And when he works dirty, he gets a crowd of 4,500 people. Wow. And he's running a business. So it's not always the fault of the comedian. I'm not saying they're innocent. But if there's a trend that people want sure. to hear something, um, they'll sell them what they want to uh, to do bigger revenue. You know, radio is the same way. People yeah. ask me, oh, why did so-and-so sound this way at this station, this way at that right. station? You kind of go, uh, you go with the, you change with the times. The, um, the question that I'm going to be lambasted if I don't ask you is about comedy today. Now, you're still active as an agent After, today. Well, right? the only agent I'm handling now, Frank, really is, our friend Tom Dreesen, mm. and myself. Because mm. when I'm doing this thing now, I'm booking myself all over. People want to the, get these comedians. And it's not only the older folks going down memory lane with a couple of laughs, but I got people in my audience in their 20s. They may never heard of these guys, but they laugh their fannies off and they say we love them. And for them, I become a bridge between old show business mm. and a young generation. I love it. Funny is funny. The the complaint that we hear so much from comedians these days, people like Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, and others, is that the uh, level of some people call it wokeness, some people call it political correctness, but the ease in which people seem offended and ready to go to war over being offended has made comedy very difficult. Jerry Seinfeld has said publicly that he doesn't really want to perform on college campuses anymore because uh, you can't even make a joke about a gay French king. That was the example that he used. How do you find that uh, that whole thing, whatever you want to call it, cancel culture, wokeness, political correctness, e- being easily offended and running to Twitter about it. How do you find that has affected comedy these days? Well, in a negative way. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'd be just nicer if uh, I, we could take ourselves a little less seriously and let the comedians do their job of entertaining us. You know, I tell people, you don't need your medications. You need an hour of Milton Berle to straighten you out. <laughs> and, and the truth is, if we would be a little less serious. Now, I remember the old Rat Pack routines. I wouldn't say it's the most brilliant comedy, but they, they took prejudice and they reduced it to a silly joke. And uh, whether it was uh, uh, something against uh, blacks or Italians or Jews or whatever, you know, that was uh, Tommy Dreesen told me, he said, El, when he worked with Sammy Davis in the 70s, before he was working with Frank Sinatra. He said Sammy uh, would go out and Sammy's mother was Puerto Rican and his father was black and he converted to being Jewish. You know, he said he moved in a neighborhood, he wiped it out just moving in. And uh, Sammy would go out and uh, he would tell the audience that uh, he was just got back from Alabama visiting some friends there. And when he got on the bus, the driver said, get to the back of the bus. And he said, I'm not black, I'm Jewish. And the driver said, get off. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you would take it and if we'd be a little less serious... It would just make it so much Yeah, simpler. and that's why I really do give credit to people like uh, Dave Chappelle, who are still willing Absolutely. to go out there and push the envelope and do the kind of humor that some people consider offensive yeah. or and uh, and still go out there and do your thing and not worry about the chorus of, of critics on social media and elsewhere. Now, you alluded to Henny Youngman yeah. earlier. Certainly, that's someone who is a real legend in, in show business. There are so few comedians that you can identify with their routine to the extent at which you can uh, identify Henny Youngman and the Take My Wife Please bit. Here he was at a, uh, a, a he w- here he was at a roast 
I believe, of Don Rickles. Here's Henny Youngman. Henny, 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 will you do? Will you back off just a little? Will you back off just a little? A little further. A little further. Wait. How far do you want me to go? You got a car? <laughs> Talk to me about Henny Youngman. Sure. What made him so unique? Well, Henny, I knew well. Uh, this is way back many years ago, and as a guy who uh, is a pretty big name in radio now, Mark Simone, and Mark and I were extremely close, uh, and Mark really wanted to go into comedy at that time and be stand-up comedy comedian uh, with a fellow named Larry Kelly, who was Kenny's grandson. And uh, I came in as the agent. What, Larry Kelly is Henny's Henny, grandson? He was Henny's grandson. Really? Wow. Yeah. And uh, I uh, had met him through Mark, because Mark and I at that time were extremely close. Uh, and they wanted to become a comedy <laughs> Just team. a quick aside. I won't yeah. belabor the point. But it, it, I feel like everybody that has a story about Mark Simone begins the story by saying, at one time, Mark Simone and I were extremely close. You wonder what the trend is here. Is it everybody else or is it Mark? Who knows? I, I, but we'll put we'll save that for an off-air conversation. But, but yeah. anyway, <laughs> but yeah. uh, Mark... Uh, uh, introduced me to Larry because he wanted to work with Larry as a comedy team and I would be the agent. And uh, I met Henny, which is gra- his grandfather. And Henny was just a wonderful guy. He had an apartment that was uh, 55th and 6th. He would go to the Carnegie Deli uh, one half of the day and a Friars Club the other half of the day. But I remember uh, walking into his apartment and at that time you had the old-fashioned rotary phones and there were like six lined up. And he'd be on the phone as an agent calling everybody uh, getting jobs, and um, uh, he really was old school, and he told me, he said, Ellie, he was about 14 years old in the Catskills uh, as a waiter, a busboy, and he looked funny because Henny was like 6'5 sure. and a little silly looking, and he said, one of the owners said, he gave me a couple of bucks, he said, get up on stage, tell a few jokes, tell how, see how it works, and he said, once I heard that laughter and I got a couple of bucks in my hand for telling jokes, he said, I wound up doing it for another 70 years. That, that's outstanding. Uh, well, what became of his grandson as a comic? Larry uh, and Mark, it really didn't work. There, there, there wasn't that comedy magic there. And Mark stayed with radio, which he's done very well with. And uh, Larry just went into, uh, into a different business. Hmm. So they went out of entertainment completely. All right, a lot of people are eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I have two things I want to ask Elliot. First was, has he traveled to other continents? And uh, what do you think of, like, different languages or cultures, if he did? And my second question would be, using an example of, like, Fonzie character and Henry Winkler, where uh, you hear these actors on interviews, like Henry Winkler didn't sound anything like Fonzie. Mm. He seemed like a Shakespearean actor type thing, you know, that would be in a, have a part in one of Shakespeare's plays. Like, the, do some of these actors seem quite different from their on-screen characters at times? Absolutely. Uh, what um, uh, Jackie, uh, as an example, uh, off-screen, uh, honestly, I would find him uh, very, very quiet. Mm. Uh, I would find him as a deep thinker, uh, extremely bright. Uh, but not a wisecracker at all. You know, he goes on stage and he kind of becomes that rhythmic walk with that kind of like chip on his shoulder attitude and kind of like a finger snapping guy. Uh, and uh, that was his onstage persona that worked well. But uh, offstage, um, he could just be extremely quiet. And Pat Cooper is Pat Cooper 24 hours a day. I oh, mean, yeah. you know, that's that that is no change at all. So he's unusual. Uh, but as far as the other fellows, uh, they, they put together a character that works. And uh, as long as the people enjoy it and are entertained by it, they play that character on stage. I had worked with a fellow named David Fishoff, who at the time was touring the Ringo, Ringo Star All-Star Band. 
And uh, Ringo used to kid. I think he still does. He says, hey, you know, my name is Richard in my real life, uh, but uh, I'm on stage now. I take the puppet out of the box, and for an hour and a half, I'm Ringo, so let's have a good time. Uh, So the answer is yes, they do create characters uh, that are entertaining, and uh, in real life, uh, many of them are just like you and I. Yeah, thank you, Joe. The so we, we've been talking all about uh, the history of comedy and the Catskills, and I know you do this presentation. If people want to see this presentation, either in person or online somewhere, how can they do that? Well, very simple. Go to my website and contact me. Uh, I do it uh, in uh, uh, in person uh, and. Um, I come down, and like I say, it's taken on a life of itself, even to the point where I'm going to be going into the stand-up comedy club, Stand Up New York, uh, West 78th Street, in September, uh, which will be my first venture into an actual nightclub. And I want to go in there and, you know, challenge those guys and saying, hey, my guys on video could get bigger laughs than you doing what you're doing. Uh, And uh, so that'll be the first time in a nightclub. But right now I'm doing uh, corporate dates and sisterhoods and men's clubs and fundraisers. Uh, they just keep bringing me back. So if you go to ElliotGordonPresents.com, uh, you've got uh, my number there and uh, get in touch with me. And people are talking to bring me down in Florida. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, uh, Jackie and Pat always taught me, hey, you go where the money is. You know, wherever there's a date and you're available, you go and do it. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yes, hi. I have a comment and a question. Uh, I think you just may have overlooked a, a major reason for the uh, demise of the Catskills, which is the uh, demographics of the Jewish people changed. It was a particular type of Jew that is unfortunately almost extinct that dominated the Catskills. Um, but I, and what I'd like to ask you is: was was it not was that was it not obvious that that was true by the fact that certain comedians uh, were very highly uh, held in very high esteem and had a very tremendous reception in the Catskills, but that was no indication of their success in the outside world. And one example I could think of is Alan King. Uh, He was probably the king of the Catskills, but he really didn't make it in show business on the level that he was, that he made it in the Catskills. Is that, is that true? No, that uh, wasn't my impression. I'm going to disagree with you there. uh, So uh, forgive me for that. But, uh, Alan uh, told me that uh, he was opening shows for Frank Sinatra for a long time to get bigger exposure. Uh, And then he went on doing comedy specials uh, and uh, he went on big tours uh, and he just became very diversified because he's a a businessman. He wanted to make investments. Uh, But Alan was uh, I play clips of Alan and I get roaring laughter from young kids also a terrific actor. If you watch okay. the film Casino, yeah. I don't know that there's another actor on earth yeah. that could have done a uh, a better job with the role. I think he plays uh, the pres- the the union president Andy Stone than uh, than Alan King did. Uh, are there any? You know, obviously we just lost uh, Freddie Roman, who uh, we could talk about in a second. But are there any greats, comedic greats from that golden era of the Catskills that are still around these days and? Still performing uh good question uh, outside of robert klein who was really the tail end mm. uh and jerry seinfeld who's the tail end in fact uh, uh jackie had told me he said l i didn't even remember it he said but jerry had gotten in touch with him and always says it in his interviews that uh he was at an open mic 40 years ago and he said i had come over to him and encouraged him, and that had a tremendous impression on him because I was a successful comedian. Hmm. He said, I don't remember doing it, but, uh, you know, Jerry has gotten in touch with him and, and said that he was would see him in the Catskills, and Jerry Seinfeld is probably the last end of that era. Uh, so, but the guys you're talking about, Pat, Pat Cooper's ah, still around. Right, of course. And yeah. Shecky Green. Uh, I called last go. week, I spoke to Pat's wife, and... Um, uh, uh, Emily, and I said, you know, do you see Shecky? Because I've been calling him on the phone, and it just rings off the hook. I don't get him anymore. Is he okay? I know he lives near you, near in Vegas. She said, oh, yes. She said, every Sunday there's a big breakfast in their neighborhood. I think it's called Henderson, Nevada. And Shecky's there at 97, singing songs, telling jokes, being Shecky. 
And so Shecky's still out there at 97. That's that's terrific. We're broadcasting in Nevada. So for all we know, uh, uh, Shecky and Pat and Emily may be listening right now. Shecky, call me. We're going to continue with Elliot Gordon in just a bit. If you're interested in learning more about his career or maybe even booking one of these shows on the history of comedy in the Catskills, you can go to ElliotGordonPresents.com. Two T's, two L's, ElliotGordonPresents.com. A ton of great stuff on there. We'll continue with your calls in a moment as well. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When your baby leaves you all alone And nobody calls you on the phone don't you feel like a cry? Don't you feel like a cry? Well, here I am, a honey. Come on, look at me. When you're Solomon Burke singing Cry to Me. If you want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program in this or any other hour, join our Facebook group. Uh, just go, go online and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Go on Facebook, I should say, and search uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. My guest for the hour is Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, former aide to Mayor Giuliani, producer, talent agent. And these days, one of the many things that he does is he has a presentation focused on what we're focusing on this hour, namely the comedians and the Catskills and where those two areas intersect. One of the people you mentioned uh, a moment ago, Elliot, we unfortunately lost last year, the late, great Freddie Roman. I always start with a story, and I love stories. This is my favorite. Couple married 47 years. The lady becomes ill. She passes away. Funeral service is over. The pallbearers lift up the coffin, start to walk out. The coffin hits the wall. From inside the coffin you hear, oh my God, a miracle. The lady lived. She lived another three years. Got sick again, died again. Another funeral. Service is over, the pallbearers lift up the coffin, start to walk out. The husband yells, watch out for the wall. <laughs> Nobody like Freddie Roman, is there? Wonderful guy. And, you know, what happened was um, when Fred had that show Catskills on Broadway. Which I saw, which I enjoyed immensely. Great show. Yeah. Great show. I, uh, I met him at the Friars Club. And um, I said, you know, Fred, how'd that come about? And uh, he said, "El, well, when Jackie got so hot in 1985, his original big success on Broadway, uh, and he left, went on a hiatus, he said, I wanted to get that market. He said, so I took a small theater to Helen Hayes, which is the smallest theater on Broadway, 500 seats. And he said, none of us are Jackie Mason's big name, but I got Mal, I got Marilyn Michaels, Dick Capri, myself, and I figured if we go in with four, we'll do okay. And they ran the year, and they did well. And then after that, they just kept touring. And I said, Fred, let me take a shot. And I got him a job also at Kravis Center, same thing, West Palm Beach. And I think they sold it out to 2,000 or 2,200 seats. I got him 35 grand for the night for them to split. And then the same thing in Chicago. And he said, El, you just became a member of the Friars Club. And I said, okay. And uh, Fred and I were pretty friendly. That's outstanding. All right. A lot of people eager to uh, chat with you. William is in Astoria. Hello, William. Yes. Hello. Hello. How are you? Great. What's on your mind? Good. Okay. I just wanted to um, mention one of my favorite comedians, uh, Red Buttons. Yeah. That's yeah. good choice. I knew Red. And um, uh, Red taught me a lesson. I actually, we were just talking about Catskills on Broadway, and I had called Red. I met him. There was a gentleman who was uh, my mentor and teacher and my buddy, Sid Bernstein. He's most famous for bringing the Beatles to America, presenting him at Chase Stadium. And uh, Sid told me one night, uh, El, uh, Red's on Broadway. Let's go down there. I got a couple of tickets. He knew Red. 
And uh, that show didn't do well. We went backstage and I met Red and he said, again, you know, everybody saw Jackie Mason's success. He was away. They said, let's get Red Buttons in there. And he said, "L, I needed some out of town tryouts uh, and the show didn't work. Mm. It was called Buttons on Broadway. But uh, he gave me his number and I called him not long after that. I said, Red, you know, uh, Catskills on Broadway uh, had did so good. I said, you know, I wanted Freddie to get out there again. And uh, maybe we can get you in that ensemble, maybe a fresh name. And he said, El, he said, I'm going to uh, teach you something. He said, entertainers never say no. They give you a price that's so ridiculous. <laughs> that means no. He said, so I'm going to tell you I want 25000 because I'm not going to get it. And I want you to tell everybody Red Buttons asked for twenty five grand. He said, but it's my way of saying no. He said, I don't got the energy. I, I can understand that. Believe me. Hey, um, before we run out of time, uh, we're now airing in Alaska, by the way. We're very happy to be on in Anchorage on uh, KYBR. Great station out there. And I got a nice, uh, nice email from a listener, Kathy, out there. And she writes, I won't read the whole thing, but she said, I discovered your show. First thing that struck me was your humor and Curtis Lee was humor. I never knew he was so funny. That's uh, that's what she wrote to me. And the truth is, as uh, people that listen to Curtis regularly make fun of me on the radio know, Curtis is actually one of the funniest people ever. And you actually co-billed an event with him recently. Where did you guys go? What did uh, you do? And we're going to do it more. What happened was I called Curtis. I said, Curtis, I said, you know, I got an idea. Why don't you and I go up on stage together, you know, separately, but as far as the same presentation. And Curtis uh you know, he's like Pat Cooper. He said, let we try everything. So I said, I'm going to do a half hour, the history of the comedians of the Catskills. And then you do a half hour about local politics. And at the end of the day, we both discussed the comedians. And he said, oh, great idea. So there was a hotel called the uh, uh, Crown Plaza in uh, Connecticut. And on April 10th, Curtis and I went up there as a co-bill. I did a half hour. He did a half hour. And uh, the audience just loved it. And I got a lot of um, other requests. And Curtis and I are going to be doing more dates Wonderful. together. Great. Well, you got to keep us posted on that. All right. I want to squeeze in at least one more here. People have been very, very kind to uh, call in and hold. Howard is in Elmhurst. Howard, very quickly. Thank you. I, I worked in the Catskills. And one of the funniest books that I ever read was Catskill Culture. There's one story about kids. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, two guys who go up. And they want to meet women, so they make a deal that if, if they have a woman in the room, they will put a towel on, on the door, which was the regular practice. So all these kids were going around the hotel taking off the towels. <laughs> That's very funny. Are you familiar with that book at all, Elliot? No, I'm not, but it sounds terrific. Yeah, I, I'll put that on my list as well. Elliot Gordon, this has been a real treat. Let's do this again soon. Sooner the better. If people want to check out Elliot Gordon, they can go to his website, ElliotGordonPresents.com. You can even maybe uh, book him for one of these shows, the presentation of the history of comedy in the Catskills. We're just getting started here. It's uh, Friday. You know what that means. Denunciations coming up in mere moments. I got a lot on my mind, and the grievances will be aired. Believe you me. Until next hour, the words of the great Bob Barker. Help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.